Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the intrepid souls that found their way here today to worship together, um, for us all to lift our hearts, our voices, to express our love for you and our praises to you. And, and we thank you that we've had this time to joyously celebrate our salvation in your son, Christ Jesus. Now, Father, we continue to worship you by giving careful attention to the proclamation of your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit inhabit both the speaker and the hearer. We ask that you would descend upon this place and that you would share the joy that we have here today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how it is? You, you take your kids out every year to go buy them shoes, and then like a month later, they've outgrown their shoes, and you have to come to the church and ask for $54 million so that you can get them a new pair. Well, Jesse Duplantis feels your pain only not with a pair of shoes that's worn out, but he needed a new jet. Not to be confused with the three jets he already had, but uh, he came to his congregation with this need that he felt God was directing him to have a new Falcon 7X jet, which cost $54 million because, well, you know, the Lord Jesus wouldn't want his ministers traveling around on a commercial plane. Uh, apparently, if you're traveling around in a commercial plane, they have the terrible inconvenience, Duplantis says, of having people stop and ask you to pray for them. Man, if you're, a, if you're a minister, that's just a lot to ask for. Also, Jesse Duplantis, in an interview in 2015 with uh, Robert, or excuse me, with uh, Kenneth Copeland, said that uh, it was inconvenient for ministers to travel on plane because when you're in a commercial plane, you're stuck in a tube with with demons in there with you and. Again, I can sympathize with this pain because I've, I've been in a van with my grandkids and I know just what it feels like. <laughs> any rate, DePlantis then pulls the trump card when he said that God personally told him that he wanted him to buy this brand new, not a used, a brand new Falcon 7X uh, jet to, to go with his existing fleet. And in other news, you remember Jim Baker? Jim Baker, he started the... the uh, uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network and his his uh, particular program, the home of the program was the PTL Club. Um, Baker's, remember Tammy Faye Baker, she's famous for having these gigantic eyelashes and, and uh, the coiffed hair and stuff like that. Well, um, Baker decided that with all the success they were having on television that they were going to build a Christian theme park and they needed to raise money for this Christian theme park called Heritage USA, which would include water slides in a 500-room hotel, and of course the, the uh, staple of all amusement parks would be tax exemption, and so Baker's started collecting money for this amusement park. Turns out the IRS um, showed that they weren't paying their dues and that the Bakers were siphoning off $1.3 million from the accounts of the, the ministry to their own personal uh, use. They were redirecting that money. And the report came out from CNN that uh, Jim Baker had used some of the ministry's money to pay $279,000 of hush money for this affair that he had had on the side. Jump forward a little bit, Baker gets uh, uh, indicted, convicted on 29 counts, which include mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy. He's sentenced to 45 years in prison after serving a whopping four years of that 45, he's paroled out. 
And then in 1994, his cherub face finds the warm limelights of the television studio once again, and he starts selling survival food. So he's got this survival food package called the Peace of Mind Final Countdown Offer. For only $4,500, you can get this big block of inedible survival food. Lasts forever, you just can't eat it. Then, uh, <laughs> then he comes up with a new a new sales gimmick, he starts selling this product called Silver Solution. So Silver Solution was supposed to cure uh, AIDS, HIV, uh, SARS, and this is where the big one is, coronavirus. So he's selling this coronavirus that he says eliminates, totally eliminates within 12 hours, kills it, deactivates it. And for four ounces, it only costs $80. State of Missouri starts a, a suit against Jim Baker because he's selling a false product. It does not cure coronavirus. Now, I've mentioned before, <clears throat> I have this personal friend, and I consider him a close friend, but he thinks all pastors are like those televangelists that I've just described, that they're only in it for the money, and it's just a big gimmick to sucker gullible people out of their money, and that all Christians are those gullible people who give their money to these extravagant televangelists or, or pastors who uh, they're foolishly following these charlatans. Now, I don't actually blame him for thinking like that because not being a Christian, he doesn't go to church and he doesn't know any other pastors other than what he sees on TV. So it's a natural conclusion. I think we, we have earned that reputation that all pastors are like televangelists. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a, a logical uh, hypothesis because, you know, he doesn't know any other ex, expect, uh, exceptions to that. And so I, I accept his mocking ridicule because, you know, in a way he's not wrong. All pastors look like that from his point of view. Um, these charlatans, by the way, are not new to our culture. They're not new to mass media. They've always been around. Even before there were Christians, there were religious charlatans. They, they make a religious appeal. They get people all jacked up on some uh, religious idea. And once they've got them hooked, they, they fleece them. And that's what the Apostle Paul was also accused of in the text that we're looking at today. That these false teachers, they would uh, accuse Paul of being a false teacher, of having impure motives, of only in it for what he could get out of it. So they began to impugn his character and try to challenge and undermine his authority. So the, the chapter we're looking at today, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is giving his defense. He's explaining um, the, the fact that he was not lying to the Thessalonian church and that he, he, do, he did minister to them with integrity and sincerity. Now again, the, these, these accusers are trying to undermine the church by destroying its confidence in the one who's, um, who had started that church. Now, the first century world, the Roman world, was, was full of these false uh, spiritual leaders, these, these charlatans. And so it was pretty easy just to lump Paul in with all these other guys that were making their way around trying to get personal gain, um, financial gain and, and, and glory from their religious production. W.L. Neal writes, he says, there was probably, there has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West 
had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, local godlings all competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, uh, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, the swindlers and the saints, jointly clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. So this problem is not unique to our time, and it certainly was not unique to Paul's time either. The second century satirist called Lucian, he wrote an entire work about these kind of hairballs, and he writes that those who went about in the country practicing quackery and sorcery and trimming the fat heads, for so they style the public in the traditional pattern of magicians. So Paul is traveling in the midst of this world. And there was people then that were rejecting Paul's message. Um, they, they persecuted Paul. They ran him out of town. And they likely viewed Paul in the same category as all these other charlatans of the, the first century. They, the problem is that not only was that kind of a, a leader common in our era, but it was common in Paul's era too. And not just these fake pastors, but there were also a lot of teachers in the church, churches that Paul had founded that were preaching the right gospel, but they were doing it for the wrong message. There were a lot of teachers within these churches that were acting just like these pagan pseudo-prophets, and so there was every reason for there to be suspicious suspicion uh, on Paul. And Paul would answer it by saying that he preached Christ not out of selfish ambition, but Paul was aware that there were a lot of people who did, even in the real Christian churches. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2.1. Remember that after a brief time in Thessalonica, um, his ministry was brought to an end. He was, he was in the Jewish synagogue for about three weeks, and he was probably in Thessalonica for another a couple months, maybe, because he had a, he had a witness to the rest of the, the Gentiles after the Jews had kicked him out. And he'd met with um, pretty much phenomenal success. There were a lot of people turning to Christ and, and committing their lives and, and growing phenomenally. But the Jews became jealous and they hired a bunch of thugs from the marketplace to uh, arrest Paul and Silas. And so they went to the home of Jason where Paul and Silas were staying. They didn't find Paul and Silas and so they grabbed Jason and some of the other new Christians and brought them to court and charged them with a rather serious uh, uh, charge against stirring up uh, sedition and, and trouble, and they made Jason post bond, post a bail, promising there wouldn't be any further civil unrest. And the, the brothers, the Christians, uh, then got Paul and Silas out of town. They, they moved on south. The Jews kept pursuing them all the way down to, to Athens. So Paul is, is gone, and the enemies start a very malicious smear campaign to discredit Paul. They, they say, you know, when things got rough, Paul ran away. He, he, uh, we haven't heard from him. He hasn't been back since. Uh, he's, he's obviously insincere. He's obviously driven by the, the basest of motives. He's just one more of those phony teachers that tramp up and down the Ignatian Way. We run into him all the time. He's just a charlatan. He's only in it for what he can get out of it. 
He doesn't care about you Thessalonians. He just abandoned you. He's much more concerned with saving his own skin than he is about your warf welfare. And you know what? They're, the Thessalonians are thinking, you know, you might have something there because he did run out of town when the things got heated up. And he hasn't been back ever since. And so they're starting to listen to these accusations and they're wondering if that didn't just fit Paul. It seems rather plausible to them. And Paul must have found this very painful, not the attacks of the Jews and not the, not the attack of the non-Christians. He must have found it quite painful that these new brothers in Christ were starting to listen to this and, he, and misrepresenting, misrepresenting him. But two, Paul must have certainly been aware that the very same thing happened to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is accused of being a drunkard, a lawbreaker, a, a subversive. Uh, he's in league with the devil. The, he's, he, he was accused of being mad. And so Paul decides that he needs to respond to these accusations, not out of pride, not out of, uh, of irritation with, with the believers, but because the truth of the gospel was at stake, and it required an answer. He had to give an answer for the sake of the church. You also may remember that before Paul got to Thessalonica, he'd had a rather rude treatment when he was in Philippi. He was in Philippi preaching, and they arrested him, and Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens, are beaten, publicly stripped, beaten with rods, and thrown in jail without a trial. And that was against the law. And yet, uh, Paul, when, when he leaves there, he, he gives a defense. He met the strong opposition. And he's, he's saying to them, basically, you know what, I was willing to suffer that kind of indignity and that kind of physical mistreatment because I believed in the message I was giving and because I loved you. Because of you, it was worth it for me. I, if I was trying to avoid persecution, I would have picked a different line of work. So he, he goes to them, and, and he's appealing to the, uh, the Thessalonians. Now, we don't specifically have the charges that the unbelievers were leveling against Paul. We are inferring them from the responses that Paul gives. But Paul goes on to, to describe to them his ministry. He recounts what he did with them how he did it, and why he did it. And the reason that he's doing all that is because he's hoping that they will say, oh yeah, I, re I remember that that's how you were towards us. I remember that's what you said. I remember your motive for doing that. I, I remember that you had our interest in your heart so that they would ultimately conclude that these charges against Paul were untrue. <clears> 1 <throat> Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been treated uh, shamefully at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Again, we don't have a specific list of accusations, but we can infer them from his response. And the first thing we can infer is that they were saying Paul's teaching was pointless because Paul answers and he says in verse 1, our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't purposeless. And now he's already explained to us 
Um, the, the point of his teaching in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, but he's, he's, he's asking them again, really, do you think it was meaningless what we had to say to you? Now, remember what he'd already said. He said the gospel is powerful. He preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit illuminates the truth. The people hear the gospel and they respond to the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit working in them. They understand what is said and they receive what is said. He's saying it was not pointless. It wasn't inert. There's, there's a profound effect that not only has changed your life, but has changed other people who have heard of your life. Now, the second charge in verse 2 is they've said that uh, when the going got tough, Paul tucked his tail and ran away. Uh, when I was a kid, most of you won't remember this, but there was, there was a show called Branded starring Chuck Connors, so, yeah, 65, 66, I think it went off the air about then. And Chuck Connors plays this cavalry captain who his, his whole group gets ambushed by Indians. They all fight to the last man, and he is the last man standing. He, you know, he bravely fought, and when he, gets, when, he, when he finishes the fight, everybody else is dead. All the Indians are dead, all the cavalry guys are dead. He walks back to the fort, He's accused and convicted of being a coward, that the only reason that he came back was because he ran away from the fight. And so the whole series is based upon branded, scorn for the man who ran. What do you do when you're branded and you know you're a man? So I, I tried to tell that to our worship leader, Brandon. You know, Brandon, what do you do when you're, when you're Brandon and you know you're a man? He, I thought that was hilarious. He didn't get it. You know? but, <laughs> well, that's what happened here in Thessalonica. Uh, they're accusing him of being a coward, of running away when, when the danger uh, raised its head. And, and again, there's, there's a sense where that would make sense because he did leave town when, when things got hot because the disciples forced him to leave town. And he was pursued by the, the Jews and, and the Gentiles that were, that were opposed to the gospel. And so... It would certainly make sense to the Thessalonians looking back that Paul did run away. But he says, I'm, I'm no coward. I, I got beat up and, and worked over and treated indignantly in Philippi, and I knew that that would happen if I, if I came to you too. And so he says, with boldness, we, we, we declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He, he knew that there was going to be conflict. He knew that was the price of proclaiming the message. Uh, he knew that he was probably going to get beat up again, and yet, yet he, he nevertheless does that with boldness, not with cowardice. Verse 3, the, the third accusation here, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. What were they saying about him? That whatever his message is, true or false, his motive for his message is greed. He only is in this for what he can get out of it. He's probably a very immoral man because in the end, his, his only intention is to deceive, to deceive you. Now again, <clears throat> Paul will answer this accusation. All of chapter two and chapter three are really the answer to this accusation. But for right now, all he just says is that's not true. That's not what I did. That's not how you were taught. My teaching to you did not spring out of base motives. Actually, I had you in my heart all along, and it was inspired by God's grace. 
Now, I didn't deceive you. Uh, I, 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 I told you some things I knew you weren't going to like, and yet I told it to you anyway. You know, somebody that teaches you the gospel of truth is going to also teach you things you don't like to hear, like God's wrath against sin and God's judgment for those who won't come to him through Jesus Christ. Those are not convenient truths. But Paul confirms the truth of his message by saying, I, I did not deceive you. The word deceive comes from the Greek dolos, which is used of a, of a fish hook or hiding the bait in a trap or some sort of, of a trick, a deception. A lot of the false teachers did use these tricky methods. They, they would often use sorcery or, or magic or theatrics to appear like they had some kind of supernatural power or they were especially in tune with, with the gods. And they would use these theatrics to make people think that they were something special, most always because it gained them sexual or financial favors. That's what they were into it for. Paul wants his colleagues to know they were not doing that. They were discharging their responsibilities. They were speaking the truth. They had no intention of deception. And Paul is the opposite of a false teacher. His message is truth. It, his life is pure. His ministry is honest. There's, there's no hypocrisy in it. Again, how very much unlike the false teachers of our day who do use deception and try to make, that, make us think that they're in, tight with God because they can do, they can perform otherwise unexplainable magic tricks. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. So Paul's trying to show us here where his motivation really lies, and he explains that his motivation is that he has been entrusted by God to present the gospel. Now, he's not promoting himself as God's messenger. He's promoting God as the source of the message. That's an entirely different thing. He is the one who has been sent with the message. He, he, he says he does not speak to please men. His objective is to speak to please God. Now, honestly, hopefully, when we preach the gospel, we hope that the message will be pleasing to men because we want them to respond favorably to the message. We want them to hear the words and, and, and be favorably inclined to receive the truth so that their lives will be transformed. It's not that we're trying to irritate people with the gospel. We want them to uh, be favorably inclined towards the message that we have. But Paul is saying that, that it, he's preaching because he has, to, he has to answer to God. You know, it's so tempting when you're preaching the message, when you have a, a ministry or you're trying to share your faith with someone, that you want to tell them the things that they want to hear because they will be favorably inclined. It's really hard to stand up for the truth when, it, when it's awkward or, wh or when it's difficult. Like I said, it's, you know, it's particularly tempting to glaze over the harder parts of the gospel, like judgment and wrath. But it's God's opinion that we have to uh, trust, and it's God's opinion that we respond to. Now again, 
What a contrast with these phony religious charlatans both now and then. And now Paul lists three things here that he does not do to please men, to win their favor, to seduce an audience. He says, I didn't use flattery, I wasn't greedy, and I wasn't trying to promote myself or seek glory. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for good. God is a witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So flattery, greed, and glory. Again, the very same things that motivate the TV evangelist of our time. Paul and his friends come to um, the Thessalonians. They are not using flattering speech. When someone flatters they're trying to win favor, either so that they can gain control of the person or that the person would be uh, inclined to, to uh, do what they're wanting them to do. So it's a, it's a ploy um, to seduce people using these compliments. Uh, false teachers not only try to gain power and influence through their flattering words, but what Paul goes on to say next, their motive, their underlying drive is greed. Again, that was, that was common for the false teachers of Paul's day. It's very common for the false teachers of our day. And therefore, Paul says, I did not come to you with any pretext for greed. He doesn't want them to think he had greedy intentions. In fact, he tells them a little bit later, we'll get that there next, that he didn't ask them for money. He worked so that he wouldn't be a burden upon them. He tells the Ephesians uh, later, he, he say, I have coveted no one's silver or gold, you yourself know that with these hands I ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And third, unlike the false teachers of his day, Paul does not seek glory, esteem, honor, praise from men. Now, you have to understand that in Paul's day, public speaking was a major competitive sport, and successful sophists and rhetoricians were treated like uh, superstar athletes are today or like, or like Hollywood movie celebrities. And Paul, Paul is saying that he's, he's not seeking that kind of glory. Epictetus, a Roman writer, cynically describes an orator who demanded praise from his audience at the end of his speech. It was quiet, and so he, he demands, praise me. And they say, what shall we say? And he respond, cry bravo, marvelous. Chrysostom, another historian, refers with contempt to the glory-seeking antics of the sophists, calling them gorgeous peacocks lifted up high on the wings of glory and their disciples. So it was a common thing for people to want praise, to be admired, their glory-seekers for themselves. And Paul says, that is not what we were like, and you should remember that. Verse 7, <clears throat> but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her, ch her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct 
towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his, king, his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says, our behavior was very not like. We were very unlike all this, these false teachers. Our behavior was, was antithetical to all these other guys. And so he uses several metaphors in verses 7 through 8. He says, we were like a, a, a nursing mother in our gentleness and care for you. Uh, in verses 9 through 10, he says, we were faithful workers discharging our responsibility. And then in uh, 11 through 12, he says, he, he, they, they were like nur nurturing fathers. Um, he, not only was he not motivated by, by flattery, or greed or self-glory, he says, first of all, his manner with them was gentle. Gentle like a, a nursing mother caring for her children. And this gentleness describes the virtue of being um, tender and considerate, concern for the well-being of other people instead of being severe or brusque or, or hard. And, and Paul says, not only were we, were we gentle like that, but we were also, like a mother, we were also very affectionate towards you. Our, uh, verse uh, 8, affectionately desirous of you because you've become very dear to us. And then in verse 9, he reminds them that they worked night and day, not to be a burden on them. Probably he worked night shift making tents, since that was his trade, a canvas worker, so that he could work proclaiming the gospel during the day. But the point was that he didn't ask for money from them. He, would, he, didn't, he, did, he wasn't there was no greed there. He's supporting himself. He was financially independent of this fledgling church. And then he says, instead of being a burden to them, he's, he's like a father. And the example here, he's trying to illustrate the example of a father in the sense that a father is, is giving instruction to his kids. And he's, he's uh, thinking of the educational role of a father. And he lists three things that he's trying to encourage and comfort and spur them on. Spur them on to what? And this is the one that's interesting. So that they would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You know, he has a whole sermon right there about walking, how that is a lifestyle, at a manner worthy of God and his, and his kingdom and being called into God's kingdom, the election. You could make a whole sermon out of that. But basically, we want to know, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? What does that look like? Well, it looks like that whatever you say you believe shows up in how you live your life, that you live your life, what you, how you live your life and what you say you believe, there's no inconsistency between them, that, you, that it fits what you, how you live with, with what you believe. And so people now and people then would look at your life and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They say they're a Christian. They live like Christians. So you know, we get that, right? People ought to see that we are sincere because we live Christianity. And Paul has already described what that looks like in his life, and he wants the Thessalonians to have their life look like it too. We are to live in a manner that is worthy of the God who has called us into his kingdom. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. Remember, that was the whole theme of chapter 1, thanking God. God's done all this. So he's reiterating that. We, we thank God constantly for this. 
that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So, so we're talking about uh, Paul and, and Silas and, and Timothy, and though they had ministered to the Thessalonians only for a short time, a few months at most, Paul is pointing out, you know, I really want to thank God that, that when you heard the gospel, you responded. The Holy Spirit worked in you to respond. God was at work, and that's why he thanks God and not them. That's why he praises God and not himself. Because the, the reception of the gospel and the change of life is not because they're convinced, it's because the Holy Spirit's at work in them. So Paul is thankful for that. And he's thankful that he has the privilege of ministry. And he, he's, he's ceaselessly thankful to the God who's, who's empowered the word and, 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 and makes it have its effect. He constantly thanks God for the Thessalonians. He's, He's thankful for the, for the reception of the word. He's thankful that they, they, they honored Paul. He's thankful that they were preserving, persevering in their suffering. He's thankful that they received the word. And here he says, you received the word not as the word of men, but for what it really is. It is the very word of God, that God's doing this work. See, the word has the power, not the delivery of it, the word itself. God's word has power to change people, to make a productive, efficient change. God's work always performs its purposes in the lives of those who believe. And we see a multitude of ways that scriptures effect, affect, and affect, effect, and There was a cute third one, which I can't recall. <laughs> anyway, let's look at what the Word does. Uh, the Word saves us, James 1.18. It sanctifies us, John 17.17. 17. It matures us, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It frees us, John 8.31. It perfects us, 2 Timothy 3.16. It counsels us, Psalms 119.24. It builds us up, Acts 20.32. It ensures our spiritual success, Joshua 1.8. It gives us hope. Psalms 119, 147, and Acts 20, 32. So in, in spite of all the claims to the contrary, human wisdom can't produce any of those effects. All of the other false teachers, all of the other teachers, no matter what they were proclaiming, can't have that effect that only the Word of God has. And that's what Paul says in his inspired testimony in uh, 1 Corinthians 116, I think. The, <clears throat> the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's what Paul is saying. Can you see how categorically different we are from the rest of these teachers in the world? So Paul is thankful for the reception that he get. He's thankful, as he would say to the Colossians later, that we, we constantly uh, give thanks because you're bearing fruit and it's increasing in you ever since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of the truth of God. Now in verse 14, um, Paul, um, he says that the, that the word of God is enabling them to believe in the midst of, of persecution and he commends them and then he says that he commends them for being imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He's asking them to remember that persecution follows the proclamation of the word, that it should not be any surprise to you Thessalonians that your culture persecutes you and berates the message because you are simply imitating, you're living out what has happened already to the Jews, Jewish Christians in Judea and how they were persecuted and, and relentlessly pursued. And it shouldn't be any surprise. Now, by the way, if you look at the, the, the questions that, uh, that I write up ahead of time, who does that? Anybody read those questions ahead of time? One person does that. I'm, I'm so glad I do all that labor for you. One of the questions has to do with this verse was used in pre-World War II Nazi Germany to point out that the Jews are bad and we should hate them because look what they have done. That's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is simply, whether you are Jewish or Gentile, you're going to be persecuted by your own culture. You Thessalonians are going to be persecuted just by your own people, just as the Jews were persecuted by their own people. And two, those who are saved, whether they are Jew or Gentile, are always and only saved the very same way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way for salvation other than through Jesus Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile. And that's what Paul is trying to say here, that you're saved through faith, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, and it should be no surprise that your culture persecutes you. Now, Paul, again, has been accused of being a charlatan, of being self-serving, of being self-promoting, just like so many pastors are today. I mean, he's saying, I I'm not like that. And if you'll think about it for a minute, you'll remember that's not what it was like. And so he's asking them to recall for themselves. But at the same time, and this really ought to be a clarion call for all of us to be careful that we are watching out for what we hear and to whom we are listening, and we should be checking to see if their lives match their words. Now, by the way, both Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland got their personal private jets. Duplantis got his Falcon 7X to go with his other four used jets that were all getting kind of threadbare at the time, I suppose. <laughs> Kenneth Copeland 
got his uh, Gulfstream 5. Once he got his Gulfstream 5, Copeland says, glory to God, it's ours. The Gulfstream 5 is in our hands. And then he told his donors, thank you. And he said, there's much more work to be done because the Gulfstream required $2.5 million in upgrades. <laughs> and he needed a new hangar for his new Gulfstream 5. And his own private runway needed to be extended for his new Gulfstream 5. And he needed special um, maintenance equipment for their particular ones and his particular planes. And then he said, let's be aggressive in our faith, in our giving, and in our harvesting. Now, I don't know. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to see that I'm cynical with <laughs> those guys. I don't, I don't know if they're really saved or not. If, if, they're, if they truly are saved, I hope they're embarrassed by how much money they've spent on themselves. If they're not saved, I hope they enjoy their planes because that's as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word, and we ask that your word would have its desired effect in our lives, that we would be bold in sharing our faith in you, that our lives would match our testimony. And Father, we pray that you will um, grow your church. I pray that we would be careful with whom we listen to and, and what we hear, and that we are always measuring it against what does the word of God say. And to this end, Father, we ask your blessing on this church, and we ask that you would continue to promote the unity and the peace of this church by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.